Okay, if you have a Bible or a Bible app or anything like that, uh, do keep it open to you, because uh, we're going to uh, move through this wonderful Psalm 51. I've given the title uh, of today's sermon, Coming Back from the Depths of Guilt. Coming Back from the Depths of Guilt. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, even some of the most uncomfortable, difficult of the passages. Uh, Lord, we pray that if we are sitting a bit too comfortably in our Christian lives, you will challenge us. And if we're feeling challenged, even filled with guilt for things that we know we've done in, in our past lives, that you will encourage us, comfort us, and show us there is a way back. Thank you for these words and we pray now that you will help us to learn from them and that you will walk with each one of us wherever we're at in jesus name amen well we live in an age when sexual misconduct and abuse of power seem to be everywhere people exploiting their positions of authority over others who are, who are less powerful than them and just for their own self-gratification. Allegations of sexual abuse are appearing in the world media all the time. It seems every week. Politicians, film and TV stars, the police, school teachers, celebrities. People with power, wealth and popularity who have got a platform and are taking advantage of the weak. And vulnerable. And sadly, over the years, many Christian leaders have not been immune to indulging in such uh, sordid behaviour. Some have indeed been very well known pastors and preachers, and not just in America, but, but in, in this country as well. They've been hiding misconduct, hiding their crimes behind a smokescreen of their positions and their reputations. Such preachers fall very heavily from the pedestal pulpits into which their congregations have very often put them. Six feet above contradiction and sadly often six feet above accountability. Lord protect us. Their actions often leave a trail of pain and damaged lives behind in their wake. They bring shame and ridicule on the church in the eyes of the world and most of all dishonour to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well we may think that sexual misconduct and abuse of power is quite a new problem. Well, maybe it gets a lot more publicity nowadays. Yet in this psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 51, we've got words that were written almost 3,000 years ago by King David, and he had been the perpetrator of a whole month of serious sex and power abuses. This is one of the, the few Psalms in the Book of Psalms that has a very clear historical attribution given to it at the top of the Psalm. So before we start unpacking Psalm 51, let's look at the backstory. Because that gives the context that makes it so much easier to understand what David's saying and why he's saying it. That backstory we can read in 
the book of 2 Samuel, and it's in chapters 11 and 12. So we're going to just talk through some of that. So a summary of the backstory to this psalm. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 11, the narrator begins with some seemingly innocuous details about it being springtime and the time that wars are planned. And, but this one verse is enough to raise our suspicions that, that trouble's on the way. You see, by convention, the king should be alongside his troops, encouraging them, planning the strategies. Instead, David chose to stay back at home, lazing around in his palace in Jerusalem with time on his hands. David had abdicated from his responsibilities in the public war, and in doing so, he opened himself up to failure in his private war within himself. David's whole way of thinking about himself, his power, his responsibility, it had become flawed. He drifted away from the David he'd been once before. A perfect storm was now brewing amidst the sea of tranquility of a peaceful palace. So in verse 2, David got out of bed and from the rooftop of his palace, he looked down on this woman, Bathsheba. It was voyeurism of royal proportions. She was a married woman. She was bathing in the privacy of her own courtyard. She was doing her ritual cleansing at the end of her menstrual period. So the narrator's making it very clear that at that point she was not pregnant. David saw what he wanted, and he took what he saw. He sent for her. He slept with her. For all practical purposes, we can say he raped her. And then, after using her, he dismissed her off back home. Well, who was going to know? Her husband was away fighting David's war, but he wasn't. David knew, Bathsheba knew, potentially many in the palace knew, the staff, they would have known. But we know most of all, God knew. As we read in chapter 11, verse 27, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And then a few weeks later, verse 5, she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. Well, most Near Eastern kings might have responded rather more barbarically to that situation. They'd probably just done away with Bathsheba and killed off anyone who knew. But David's kind of God-influenced morality meant that he wanted to appear to be good, and yet, actually, without being good. And you know, that can very easily be like us in the church. I don't know if you thought about the word integrity. Integrity comes from integer, it means oneness, keeping your life inside and your life outside, your public life, being at one. Not to be so is 
hypocrisy. Now that's a word that comes from a word meaning to be an actor, a pretender. Well, David used his abundant free time he carved out for himself then to come up with an elaborate cover-up plan. So briefly, David sent for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come back from the war to Jerusalem. He did it under the false guise of, of him bringing a report on the progress of how the war was going. And while Uriah was home, David offered him a little bit of downtime with Bathsheba, hoping that, conveniently, the baby might be credited to Uriah. But Uriah, and notice he was a foreigner that had converted to become a Jew, not a true, long-standing follower of God. He was a man of honour. In fact, he was the man of honour that David once was, before David corrupted himself. Uriah couldn't bring himself to break the rules while he was on active service and to go and have this downtime. You see, David then found he had no more control over Uriah than he had over Bathsheba's pregnancy itself. All this control had gone. So David changed plan, verse 14 and onwards. He messaged the army commander, Joab, to post Uriah onto the front line to send him on a senseless mission that was doomed to failure. So on top of covetousness, adultery, and lying, he now added the sin of murder, of Uriah, and indeed of a number of other soldiers who, in this foolish operation, would have died as what we now call collateral damage. So when the news of Uriah's death arrived from Joab, you can read David's reply. It shows that he was morally oblivious, just insensitive to all the things evil that he'd done. That's in verse 25. If you read the timeline then, the Lord just left David to stew for as much as a year on his own. On the outside, Everything in David's life would have looked normal, the king in his palace. But on the inside, they were not. See, the operative word that's used by the narrator to describe David's attitude towards his power and his control is the word sent. He sent for Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah to come home. He had Uriah sent to the front line. But then we get to the start of 2 Samuel chapter 12, and the tables are turned. The Lord comes into the picture and says, it says, The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. You see, there was a gulf between David's private conduct and the public perception that he wanted to create. Of himself. But Nathan places himself bravely in the gap between the public David and the private David. Nathan was a courageous prophet. He was unafraid to call out 
David's behaviour. You know, all of us need a Nathan in our lives. We all need a friend who is prepared to speak honestly in these ways to us when we get things wrong and we're not prepared to acknowledge it. Nathan does so cleverly. He uses a parable about a rich and a powerful man who acted unjustly towards a poor and vulnerable man. Now, you may recall parables are earthly stories with spiritual meanings. It's something we're very familiar with from Jesus and his life in the Gospels, but this is actually almost unique in being a parable in the Old Testament. There's very few, it wasn't used much then. Well, David heard this story and he was outraged. You see, he was still morally sensitive to the sins of other people, yet he was blind to his own shortcomings. And you know, all of us in church can very easily be like that. We can excuse our own sins, but very readily criticise other people for theirs. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tackled this. Jesus told us to attend to the planks of wood in our own eyes before we start becoming outraged with the specks of dust in other people's eyes. Well, Nathan let David's outrage towards the rich man in this parable die down. And then you can just imagine, he looked up, he looked him in the eyes, and then he hammered home the nail. You are that man. How had this happened to David? The man after God's heart. The man who wanted a heart that was like God's heart. And he'd known so many covenant blessings from God over all the years. Many of us know blessings from God over the years, but we can still fall. So we must be watchful. God then reminded David of all those blessings through the words of Nathan in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the, land, from the hand of Saul, who wanted to kill him, if you remember, in, in a one Samuel story. I gave your house to you. I gave your wives into your hand. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. Or, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Then God challenged Nathan. Challenged David through Nathan. Why have you despised my word by doing what is evil in my eyes? At that point, David was cut to the heart. He began to cry. And that's the point that we transition into Psalm. 51. What about us? What are we trying to keep secret only to ourselves, hiding even from our family? Our sins may not be the same as those of David, but what are we like as people in private, on our own or behind closed doors with our families? Is it different from how we are in public? As 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 says, God does not see as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So with that, let's turn to these impassioned words in Psalm 51. Now remember, this is a psalm, so it's poetry. Poetry communicates truth through metaphors, through painting pictures to us. But those pictures can be very live in our minds. So I'm going to describe from Psalm 51 four steps along David's road, his pathway back from the depths of the guilt that he was convicted of at that point with Nathan. So first of all, pleading with God. We read this in verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 to 9. David's eyes have opened to what he has done and who he has sinned against. Who he is now before God. What a wretch he is. And he turns in anguish to God. At the beginning of verse 1, he pleads for mercy. He begs for favour, which he knows he doesn't deserve. It's a good place to start. But David knows he's going to need so much more than that. That's just the beginning of coming back to God. The self-accusing record of all his sins, they remain glued tightly to his body. His plea is for God to blot out his transgressions in verse 1, to wipe them away until they're completely gone. This has made me think, when I was back at school in, dare I say, the 1970s, we had to use ink pens rather than biros in those days. And if we made mistakes, we didn't use Tipex fluid, which goes over the top of the mistake and just covers it over. Rather, we used some bleach-based correction fluid, which actually removed the colour of the blue ink that we were writing and made it go clear again. And then you dabbed it on dry, and then you could write over it again. Well, the imagery we've got here is in, and carries on in verse 2 is, is of David comparing himself to a foul-smelling garment that doesn't want anything painted over the top of it. No, it needs to be washed and washed and washed again. It needs to be treated to remove the stain. For God to keep washing him until all the dirt has gone off him. He doesn't want a cover-up. He wants a cleansing. The word cleanse me literally means unsin me. Make me as if I had never sinned. That's what he's pleading for. Not just for it all to be covered up and washed away. Uh, covered over rather, not washed away. And every phrase that's used in these opening verses of the psalm is what they call an imperative. It's a command that's shouted out. It's a crisis prayer that he's giving. Have mercy, blot out, scrub away, cleanse me. His plea for cleansing continues in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, 
and I shall be clean. Well, this is another poetic picture that would have been understood at the time. You see, before declaring that a leper, someone with leprosy, had been healed and was therefore clean, the priests would ceremonially wave a bunch of this plant called hyssop that had been dipped in sacrificial blood. They would wave that around, and then at the end, the, the priest would say, you are clean. He'd declare then that the leper was clean. The leper was free to resume normal life. He was no longer to be an outcast from the community. So the symbolism is one of sanctification, being made holy for God, readmission into a relationship with God, restoration, as if the unclean disease of sin had never been there. Pleading with God. Secondly, self-awareness before God. And we read that in verses 3 to 6 of the psalm. David then becomes a little calmer. His journey of redemption back to God has begun. In verses 3 to 6, he reflects on the facts of his situation that he's in. He starts to acknowledge and accept the wrong things he's done, which for so long he's been denying to himself. He's no longer on this journey of cover-up, which he's been on for a while. These verses are direct admissions of truth. I know my transgressions. I sinned. I have done evil. But to him, David's sins still feel like a vertical rock face, towering above him, casting a deep shadow down over him, and, verse 3, blocking his way ahead in life. What's it going to happen? Alongside his pleas for mercy, David recognises in verse 4 that, that God is right to judge him. He feels rather like the penitent thief was on the cross next to the Lord Jesus, who said, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He feels God would be just in punishing him. He now sees that his sins are, above all, an offence to the holiness and the majesty of God. He says in verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you might be saying, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the families of the other soldiers? And so on. Well, it's not, that verse is not in any way to imply that the pain that he caused to other people doesn't matter. In fact, far from it. When he says, against you, you only have I sinned, that's an all-embracing statement. You see, the sins person to person, they are included within that. Because those people that he so wronged, they were themselves people made in the image of God. They were children of God as well. And so in sinning against God, he was sinning against all of them. David recognizing, recognizes he was sinful right to the inner core. And not just in this episode, but verse 5 says he realises he has been 
all through his life. It's not just these specific bad sins that ruin our lives. It's sin all through our lives. And then third, he moves to what that says David expecting of God. Verses 7 to 12. Yes, even in the depths of his cry for mercy in verse 1, David still finds the space to acknowledge God's unfailing love to him in his past life. He'd known everything that God had done all the way through his life. And he'd done so much, as we read earlier. And that helps David just to lift his eyes a little bit from his despair. David returns again to a new round of praying, using imperatives, using commands again. Because he knows he needs so much more from God than just some simple mercy and a bit of cleansing, if he's not to end up in this same place all over again. So, he's, he knows he needs this to walk as a true servant of God, to be a disciple, to last, to finish well in his Christian, his God-fearing life, in our case, Christian life. You see, there are so many of God's covenant promises that he prays in these, these verses, 7 to 12. Let me hear joy. Let me rejoice. Create in me. Renew in me. Do not cast me out. Do not take away. Restore to me. Grant me. Sustain me. Deliver me. David asks God not to hide his face from him, verse 9. Not to cast him out from his presence, verse 11. He pleads with God, I am a child of God. Please don't treat me like an unbeliever. Maybe he's remembering what happened to his predecessor, King Saul, when he denied God. David says he wants the bones of his skeleton which have currently been crushed and broken with guilt, verse 8. He wants them to be able to dance once again with joy before the Lord. But notice, nowhere in this psalm does David specifically pray for sexual restraint. His downfall had started with idleness and sex. That led, and that then led to lying and murder. So why is he not praying for protected eyes, for sex-free thoughts, for accountability partners all the way through his, the rest of his life? Well, you see, the reason for a fall like David had is, is not <coughs> sexual sin. Sexual sin was not the actual problem. It wasn't the, it was a symptom. The real disease was something else. And that's true for all of us, too. You see, David wanted joy and pleasure. But he could now tell he had been looking for that in the wrong places. And that can be us as well. So, verse 10, David asks for a pure, clean heart. 
He longs once again to be the man after God's heart. He wants to be finished with wavering, he says in verse 10. So he prays for a heart that is stable and consistent, looking to the Lord. There's not a word in this psalm about sex, but it's a prayer about the fundamental focus of David's life deep within. What about us? David says, let me hear the joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain. Excellent words for a prayer for every one of us. If we're wise, we will pray to know these sort of covenant blessings for ourselves as well. That's what will sustain us in the fight against sin. Not just the determination not to do certain bad things. Having our heart in the right place with the right focus. So that's what David now was expecting of God. And finally, he starts promising to God in verses 13 through to 19. As the Lord brings David out from the depths of grief back to the joys of salvation. His spiritual and emotional stability and confidence begin to return. He starts to look outwards from himself. David starts humbly to try and make him promises to God for the future, based on God's covenant promises to him. He promises in verse 15 to bring irrepressible praise. He says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Salvation and worship isn't just something to be experienced by individuals alone. It's also for communities. David prays for the city and for the people of God over whom he ruled. And it's to be our prayer too, as the people of the Lord Jesus. We're to pray for the church collectively to repent of wrong ways, not just individually for ourselves. For the church to be firmly established, knowing the truth and proclaiming that truth. To rebuild ourselves with joy and to be filled with wonder, worship and righteousness. David promising to God. So let's bring it together in conclusion. Uriah was dead. Bathsheba had been raped and was pregnant. David had committed adultery. He'd ordered murder and he'd lied. The Bible says in, in 2 Samuel that David had despised the word of the Lord. It says he had shown utter contempt for God. That applies to us too. Yet when David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. What kind of righteous judge is God then? Seemingly to forgive such despicable acts at the stroke of a pen 
seems like an outrage to natural justice. What does this say about God? Indeed, if that was actually what God was doing, just sweeping sin underneath the carpet, then we would be right to be outraged because God would be a very unjust God. But the Apostle Paul explains in the letter to the Romans, chapter 3, how God both upholds justice and forgives the sin of murderers, of rapists, of liars like David, and of other penitent sinners like you and me. Paul says that God looked back through the centuries of sin with patient forbearance. At that time, he'd left unpunished the sins of those who'd gone before, sinners like David. But he then had laid the sins upon himself, upon Jesus on the cross. The sins of David, after almost 900 years, the punishment for those sins, the guilt was laid on Jesus. David's sins were counted as Christ's sins, and Christ's righteousness was counted as David's righteousness. So what about you and me today then? God looks at our sins, and he has laid those on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as well, if we put our faith in him. In our case, that's almost 2,000 years after Jesus died on the cross. You see, grace and mercy of God, they flow down through the whole history of the people of God, from the early Old Testament times to now and into the future. You see, undeniably, grace and mercy are utterly outrageous. But by God's wonderful plan, they are not unjust. Jesus died in David's place so that David might have the opportunity of a fresh start. And Jesus died in your place and in mine so we can have the chance to start all over again. Will you take hold of that wonderful free gift today? And we'll pray. And as you come up, I'll just read a verse. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. God is both. So embrace that wonderful gift.